what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. How's it going, David? Ah, pretty good here, Neil. Some pretty cool history news this week as they discovered the deepest wreck that they've ever gone down to, the USS Johnston. And this was the deepest dive they've ever done to get to a wreck, David. That's pretty cool. It's very cool. I read about that. Extremely impressive technical feat. What did they find down there that's interesting from a history perspective? Well, they found the wreck of the USS Johnston, which was a United States destroyer, which got sunk in the area in 1944. So, of course, they got to learn a whole ton. It was in two pieces, which tells us a whole ton about the battle damage that it sustained. And there's obviously a lot more that they're going to be releasing in the coming weeks about the naval archaeology and what we can determine about the battles that she fought in from that. And, of course, it's also important to remember that this kind of archaeology can be something of a comfort to the families of the people who died when the ship went down. One fewer lost ship, David. Very cool discovery indeed. We always love those kind of history stories because, of course, that's what we're all about here on the podcast. So let's start off a history story this way. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's October 25th, 1944. And on board... Admiral Bullhalsey's flagship's bridge. He is receiving a radio message. It says, Where is Task Force 34? The world wonders. And according to some of the men who were standing by on that bridge at the time, Halsey is so filled with shame at the implied insult from his commander, Admiral Nimitz, that he actually breaks down in tears. Wow, David, that is an epic level of sarcasm to send in a military radio transmission. The world wonders what a statement from Admiral Nimitz. That wouldn't be out of place in the sarcastic world of like Twitter today to hear that in a World War II battle operation that's quite something so there's a wild twist to this story neil we always like a wild twist david admiral nimitz when he hears about this reaction from admiral halsey will claim that he did not write that radio message that way he did send a radio message asking where is task force 34 because he's the admiral commanding he wants to know but he claims he didn't add the sarcastic all the world wonders and of course that's very plausible because the communication system to send these radio messages at a high level in world war ii was very complex with multiple radio operators along the way and it has to be encrypted and decrypted and there's teams that have to do both of those operations so It's quite possible that Nimitz didn't write it, but it's indisputable that Halsey received it and was bitter about it till the end of the war. And it sort of poisoned relationships between these two admirals because Halsey felt that Nimitz was sarcastic and then trying to hide it later on. 
Wow, if that was added by a radio operator, that's pretty funny. I mean, you can see why a bored radio operator might stick a sarcastic remark on, but you probably shouldn't do that when you're relaying messages between two admirals. So I guess the question that the world is wondering, where was Task Force 34? So Task Force 34 is in the wrong place, Neil. Clearly, based on Nimitz's message. Because this is the famous battle of Leyte Gulf. So it's the invasion, the American, I suppose, liberation of the Philippines. You may have heard the famous remark from Douglas MacArthur when the Japanese invaded the Philippines and he had to leave. I shall return. One of the badass quotes from war of all time right there, David. Well, now it's later and Douglas MacArthur is returning. And the U.S. Navy's job in this operation, of course, is to get the U.S. Army ashore because the Philippines are a series of islands. So there's a massive invasion fleet of transports carrying thousands of U.S. Army troops. And the American Navy needs to protect them and get them onto the beaches. And at the same time, the Imperial Japanese Navy has the job of preventing that. They want to stop the invasion. They want to sink the American transport fleet. But they know it won't be easy because this is 1944 and the American Navy is now larger and more powerful than the Japanese. So they can't risk a straight fleet on fleet battle. They can't just charge in because the Americans would clearly win. So instead, they've crafted an elaborate operational plan under the title Operation Show Go. And this is a series of deceptions. Two decoy forces are going to sail looking like they're threatening the transport fleet in order to lure the American fleet to chase them away from the transports so that a third Japanese fleet that they've hidden in reserve all this time can rush in and attack and sink the transports while the American fleet is out of position. And Task Force 34 is the most powerful fleet carrier task force in the American Navy. And Admiral Halsey was commanding it. And he's fallen for one of the decoys and pursued them north. And now that the first reports of a Japanese battleship force closing on the transports have come in, he knows there's no way he can get back in time to save Douglas MacArthur's army. Wow, David, what a bold move by the Japanese, and it's working. They've managed to distract Admiral Halsey and Task Force 34, draw them away from the main American force so that the main Japanese force can get the attack on that force. David, these are the kind of clever naval tactics we've heard about from some of the underdogs in previous Navy stories that we've talked about. Is it going to work here for the Japanese? Well, at this moment, the American naval hierarchy are terrified that it is. They've got reports that the largest battleship ever built, the Japanese battleship Yamato, which still holds that title of largest battleship ever built today. Wow, that's impressive, David, because there are some big battleships out there. So the fact that this one from World War II is still the largest is really tells you how big it was. Is leading 
a fleet of other battleships and heavy cruisers and destroyers, and they're bearing down on unarmed transports, and there's only one American unit in between, one American Navy unit in between the Japanese battle fleet and their target. And that unit is Task Force 3, known as Taffy 3 in cheerful U.S. Navy slang. All right, so Task Force 34 is out to lunch. They've gone the wrong way. But Task Force 3 is still in the way of this massive Japanese attack. David, what does Task Force 3 look like compared to what the Japanese are bringing to bear? Task Force 3 looks like a joke. U.S. Naval Command have effectively already written it off. They don't think there's any way it has any chance. To give you just a little brief glimpse at how outgunned Task Force 3 really is, let's compare them not to the entire Japanese fleet. And the Japanese fleet has three battleships. It has a dozen cruisers. It has 15 destroyers. So, But we're going to compare... Task Force 3 just to one Japanese ship, the Amato. Task Force 3, altogether, the weight, the displacement of the ships in tons, is less than the displacement of the Yamato alone. Task Force 3's largest guns that any of its ships have are the guns on its three destroyers. They're five-inch guns. The Yamato has the same number of six-inch guns as its secondary smaller battery, its real weapons are 18-inch guns, the largest guns ever put afloat. Task Force 3 does not look like the kind of task force you want in between your vital army transports and the Japanese battleship fleet practically in its entirety. That's not good at all for Task Force 3. I don't think I would want to be those guys. Does U.S. Naval Command have a backup plan, David? This is the backup plan. We're a bunch of backup plans deep. There was supposed to be the 7th Fleet. They've pursued a Japanese decoy force south and are battling them at the Battle of Suryao Strait, which is a fascinating story on its own, but the point is they can't come back in time. There's Task Force 34, the Fleet Carrier Task Force. They're big, they're powerful, they're way up north, and there's no way that they can do anything useful right now. And then there's Taffy 3, Little Taffy 3, a collection of escort carriers designed for anti-submarine work, but at least they're sort of carriers, which will be important in a moment. Three destroyers and four destroyer escorts, similar to what the Canadian Navy would call corvettes. And that's what Rear Admiral Sprague has on hand as he has to save the day. Okay, David, we saw an underdog tactic here from the Japanese. They used these decoy fleets to get rid of the main American fleets, leaving them just Taffy 3 here. Do the Americans have any underdog strategies up their sleeve? Is there anything they can pull out? Because now we've flipped the script here and the Japanese are no longer the underdogs. They're bringing a lot more to bear on this attack than the Americans have in their defense. 
So sometimes what you need aren't brilliant tactical strategies, they're blind luck. And the American Taffy 3 has had a stroke of luck. Not good luck, per se, but definitely luck. The Japanese admiral commanding the Japanese fleet from the bridge of the Yamato is Admiral Kurita. And Admiral Kurita doesn't know about escort carriers. The small carriers that the Americans have built just to do anti-submarine work that are built on merchant ship hulls and absolutely tiny compared to the big fleet carriers that both the Americans and the Japanese use as their main capital ships, Kurita's never even heard of them. So when he sees a group of little carriers, his first thought isn't, that's a bunch of escort carriers and I should ignore them, they can't do anything. It's, oh my god, the American fleet somehow has a whole squadron of fleet carriers I didn't know about, and they're right here ready to trap me. I need to attack them right away and ignore the transports because they're the big threat here that is going to decide this battle. So he orders all of his forces to charge as rapidly as possible and sink those carriers. So he thinks, David, that these smaller carriers are in fact regular-sized large aircraft carriers. Exactly, because he's just never heard of escort small carriers, so... He's got no idea what he's looking at, and his first thought is, it must be an American fleet out to trap me. All right, so he's going to rush in and try to take out these escort carriers that he thinks are regular-sized aircraft carriers. How does it go? Well, when the Americans realize that for some reason Kurita is willing to chase them, they realize that they can flee away from the transports, and just the same way that the American fleets got lured away by Japanese decoy forces and are in the wrong place, they can be a decoy force themselves and lure the Japanese away from the transports. So here, right at the start of the battle, they're achieving just by surviving something incredibly important. Every minute they stay alive is one more minute for the American transports to get away without interference because the Japanese fleet is chasing Taffy 3 in the wrong direction. Oh, how the turntables, David. So now it's the Americans who are using a distraction fleet who are leading the Japanese in the wrong direction. This has really changed everything. But how long can Taffy 3 really stay alive, David, to lure those Japanese away from the unarmed troop transport carriers? Well, that is certainly the question that is running through the minds of every American sailor in Taffy 3, except for that they're not just thinking, how long can we stay alive? They're thinking, how can we stay alive? Because obviously, it does not look good for the sailors of Taffy 3. So, of course, they all go to full speed. The escort carriers and the destroyer escorts in particular are fleeing at their top speed, ignoring everything and just heading away from the Japanese battleship fleet, which is a very natural and understandable reaction. And the escort carriers are also, by the way, launching 
every plane they have, most of which are not really anti-shipping planes, but it doesn't matter, anything they have to try and attack the Japanese battleships and slow them down. But it's not enough, and the Japanese battleships are faster than the slow escort carriers, which are only built on merchant hulls. And as Taffy 3 flees, the Japanese battleships are gaining. And so everyone can see that they need to buy themselves some extra time. And that's where I need to introduce into this story Mr. Edwin Evans. He's a half Cherokee, part Creek, so largely of Native American descent, U.S. Navy officer from pre-war Oklahoma, which is a state you don't expect to give great mariners, but in this case, they got lucky. And he is commanding the destroyer, the USS Johnston. Wait, David, I remember the Johnston. This was in our introduction to the podcast, our little preamble when we were just talking. This is a ship they just found the deepest wreck ever. So in World War II, in 1944, it's being commanded by Edwin Evans, this Native American man from Oklahoma. That's right. When he got command of the ship in 43, it had just been built, and he stood on the deck giving a speech to the other sailors who were coming on board, most of them green and ready to learn their trade, and he said, any man who is not ready to go into harm's way had better get off this ship right now. No one left, but that was a promise he intended to keep, and so in the past year that the Johnston has been a ship, she's become famous amongst the destroyer squadrons of the U.S. Navy for being an aggressively commanded, effective, lucky, but skilled ship. And Captain Evans, her commander, has a reputation for being just a little bit crazy. And this is the moment he really proves it. Because with the escort carriers and the destroyer escorts and everything else in Taffy 3 fleeing as fast as they can from an overwhelming force that is slowly running them down and closing the distance. As the Japanese battleships begin firing their guns in a beautiful rainbow of death. I should mention it's a rainbow because the Japanese use dye bags in their shells to help them see where they're hitting when they hit the water. As this is happening... Captain Evans gives an order to his helmsman. He orders him to turn the ship around 180 degrees, go to maximum speed, and charge straight at the Japanese fleet. Well, David, he's certainly making good on that epic speech he gave to his men when they came aboard. That's quite the story of heroism so far in the war from Edwin Evans and the USS Johnston. And now they're taking on this even greater danger, this insurmountable, seemingly, battle against this larger Japanese attacking force. What happens to the Johnston? So the Johnston charges in to battle off the island of Samar with this Japanese, massive Japanese fleet. Her initial plan is to launch her torpedoes because they're her best weapon against ships that are larger than she is. And so she repeatedly closes to dangerously close range because guns have longer ranges than torpedoes in order to 
fire on the Japanese ships, and she gets a hit on a Japanese heavy cruiser. It doesn't sink her, but the heavy cruiser loses engine power and has to stop pursuing. And one of the other Japanese cruisers also stops to look after this damaged cruiser. So that's two heavy enemy ships, both of them larger than the Johnston, which she's taken out of action in her first attack. But in return, she loses one of her forward gun turrets to enemy fire. So she's already being hit. But the Johnston is by no means done because the main Japanese force is still pursuing and the Johnston keeps on firing her torpedoes until she's entirely out of torpedoes. And only then does she turn back to try and reach Taffy 3, which is still fleeing. But by this point, the other two destroyers that were part of Taffy 3 have also turned about, realized what Captain Evans has already realized, that the only chance of victory that Taffy 3 has is for somebody to slow down the Japanese battle fleet enough that the escort carriers can escape, and that the only ships that can do that are the destroyers. So the other two destroyers are coming up. So the Johnston turns around again, this time to help support the torpedo runs of the other two destroyers by firing her guns to try and keep the Japanese heads down while the other destroyers try and close. So the battle continues to rage on, but now it's sheer chaos because the Japanese have accelerated to as fast as they can to try and run down the carriers, so they're all out of formation. But now there's these torpedo attacks and the Japanese are trying to get back into formation and everybody's shooting. And suddenly there's a rain squall. So now it's dark and no one can see anything and everybody's still shooting. Torpedo attacks, it's chaos. Wow, David. So we have these American destroyers turning around, taking on the Japanese head on while the rest of the task force tries desperately to get away and all the while hoping to lure the Japanese away from the unarmed troop transports. David, how long can these destroyers hold out? How long can they keep the Japanese in disarray? Well, it turns out to be an extended period of time. The entire battle off Samar will last about two hours, and a large portion of that is the period where the destroyers are attacking. They use up all of their torpedoes. One of the destroyer escorts, even smaller than the destroyers, is crazy enough to come and join the three destroyers. They're battling, and one by one, the destroyers start to sink, and they run out of torpedoes, which means they need to use their guns, but their guns are too small to fight battleships or cruisers successfully. And so pretty soon, they're being driven back towards Taffy 3, towards the escort carriers, but it's an extended period of time. They're trying to drag it out, keep the fight going, because they know that every minute counts. But at this point, the larger Japanese battleships start to pull ahead of the other Japanese ships because they're less disrupted by the actions of the destroyers. They have less to fear from a destroyer's torpedoes. So they're able to keep their full speed better than the other Japanese units. And so they're finally starting to close with the escort carriers, and they open fire on the USS Gambier Bay. 
the most closest to the Japanese of the escort carriers. So David, Admiral Kurita, the Japanese admiral, he's still laser focused on taking out those escort carriers, the smaller aircraft carriers that he thinks are full-sized aircraft carriers. That's right. But the commander of the USS Johnston, Captain Evans, knows that he needs to keep this going for as long as possible, and that if the Japanese get in amongst the escort carriers, it's going to be very short. So even as the first of the Amato's shells starts to hit the Gambier Bay, they're not very effective because they're too big. They punch right through the ship and only make a hole the size of the shell. They're supposed to explode inside the ship and cause much more damage, but because they're fused for battleship armor, which is very thick, and they're hitting escort carriers, which are built on merchant hulls and have no armor, they're just going in one side and out the other, much less effective than the Japanese were expecting. Well, David, that's not a problem you expect to have, that your shells are too big. But even so, Captain Evans knows that he can't allow this to continue. And so, in possibly the craziest action of a crazy day, he personally orders his ship now out of torpedoes with one of their three gun turrets out of action and low of ammunition to start a gunnery duel with the Yamato, which I just want to emphasize again is the largest battleship ever constructed. He doesn't win, but it takes almost 30 minutes for the Johnston to finally sink as Captain Evans and the rest of the crew keep on firing every gun that can still possibly be operated until it has absolutely been shattered. The entire ship is on fire before it finally breaks up and sinks. And because of that, the Amato has once again fallen behind and the American escort carriers have gotten a chance to pull ahead a little bit more another couple of minutes. Evans had to have known he was going to lose that fight, David, with the larger Yamamoto. It's completely an act of self-sacrifice. He knew he wasn't going to win. His ship was probably already on fire before he even tried to trade fire with the largest battleship in existence. And he was also outnumbered because the other Japanese battleships and cruisers coming up, once he did successfully slow down the Yamato, opened fire on him. So he had no advantages, no chance of success, but he did it anyway. And it worked because Admiral Kurita, after this extended chase, after all of this, has finally realized this isn't the real American fleet. The American transports have got away, and I am wasting my time trying to hunt down some weird tiny force. And so, after he finishes sinking the Johnston, he fires a few last shells at the tail end of Taffy 3 that's mostly out of range by this point, and then he orders the entire Japanese fleet to turn about and head home because there's no point hunting down the remains of Taffy 3 and their real objectives, they've already failed. So 
Evans and the Johnston have done it. They have held off the Japanese long enough that not only is Taffy 3 going to escape, but so are the troop transports that were headed for the Philippines, unarmed, full of American soldiers. David, it seemed impossible that Taffy 3 would be able to actually win this battle. But a few strokes of good luck and just an incredible amount of courage from the Johnston and the other destroyers to face down this Japanese fleet that was much bigger than them. It's crazy. It's recognized as insane even at the time. The Taffy 3 as a whole will get a presidential unit citation. Captain Evans is awarded the Medal of Honor. There are other medals given out to practically every surviving officer who was in the action. The U.S. Navy will teach it in textbooks, in schools, to their junior officers coming up because it's insane. An insane example of what courage and an unwillingness to give up can achieve in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. Thanks for telling us this story, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. Well, if you enjoyed this story, we've got quite a few different naval stories. You can go back and listen to some victories for underdog navies. You'll find those in our archives, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening to this right now. And you might want to check out our last episode as well, The Artillery and the Desert Fox, which was also about a World War II stand heroism, this time in the desert rather than at sea. But a very similar story there if you want to give that a listen as well if you enjoyed this. And if you enjoyed it, please give us a like and give us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. really helps us to be found. And we want to stay in touch with you, so follow us on social media so that you can see everything that's coming out from oh brother when art thou david we always like to end with a quiz are you ready for a quiz today i'd enjoy a quiz neil well we didn't plan this but our quiz today is also about world war ii david you might remember a few episodes ago in the murder and the revolution we did a quiz about the new york times and you have to fill in the blanks in new york times headlines from world war ii So I have five more headlines from World War II. Your job, David, is to fill in the blanks. All right, let's try this. We will start on September 28th, 1939. The New York Times headline was Blank a Shambles Surrenders. 1939, you said? That's right, David. It was September 28th. September 28th, 1939. I wonder if that was a reference to Poland. It was, David. The actual headline was Warsaw, a shambles, surrenders, the end of a 20-day siege, 3,000 people slain in 24 hours as Warsaw finally surrendered. Our next headline comes from May 28, 1940, and the headline was Blank orders Belgian army to quit, allies forced back in Flanders' pocket. If I recall my... Battle of France history, I believe it was the king who ordered the Belgian army to surrender. You're correct, David. The New York Times headline read, Leopold orders Belgian army to quit, allies forced back in Flanders' pocket. This was King Leopold, 
who ordered his army to surrender without consultation with his allies and against the advice of his ministers. Not a good turn there for the allies. We'll jump ahead to June 1st, 1942. The headline was, 1,000 British bombers set blank on fire, used 3,000 tons of explosives in record raid. Ah, a record raid in 1942. A full thousand bombers, that's a lot. I think the famous raid on Dresden was later. Perhaps this one was on Cologne? You are right, David. A thousand British bombers dumped 3,000 tons of high explosive on Cologne and elsewhere along the Rhineland. Winston Churchill said it was, quote, a herald of what Germany will receive city by city from now on. All right, David, just four days later, June 5th, 1942, this was the New York Times headline. Japanese battleship and carrier damaged. Many planes shot down in raid on blank. June 5th, 1942, you said? Japanese carrier damaged. I wonder... Oh, can't think of what that would be. Maybe it was the Battle of Coral Sea, so a raid on the Coral Sea. A good guess, David. This was actually the Battle of Midway. So it was Midway where the raid was taking place. This one commanded by Admiral Chester Nimitz, of course, who, of course, just had a role to play in the podcast we just did. Last headline for you, David. Wednesday, January 27th, 1943. Roosevelt Churchill map 1943 war strategy at 10 day conference held in blank. A 10-day conference between Roosevelt and Churchill, 1943. I wonder if that's a reference to the Quebec City Conference. This one was on the other side of the ocean, David, in Casablanca. The president flew 5,000 miles across the Atlantic to meet with Winston Churchill. Both war leaders emphasized that the conference was wholly successful, and they reached complete agreement. That's our World War II quiz, David, to wrap up our World War II episode. Thanks for telling us this story and thanks for playing along. I always enjoy both of them, Neil. And thanks for listening. 